Today on the show, we have Three Dog, co-founder of OHN, or Outer Heaven Network, the world's largest Metal Gear-focused streaming network, streaming everything from marathons to big boss and in-depth story runs since 2010. And I'm going to hit the leave quietly button, as painful as it is. Oh, that hurt. There will be other times, naturally, I, I promise. I know, but it was... Yeah, if we can get him on, that'll be fun. Like I said, this has been a very sort of surreal moment for me right yeah, now. Yeah, it's kind of weird. This week has been full of like, like, oh shit, my childhood is like, well, not childhood. Like, my childhood, though, has been <laughs> compounding on me. Like, fucking Three Dog is laughing at me at <laughs> my own show. Reality is starting to fold in on itself. You were watching me. You were watching my stream when you were a child. How young are you? No, no, no. That's that's why I had to add that disclaimer. Stop making us feel old. Jesus Christ! I was not a child, but I spent the better part of my twenties watching OHN. I think even before it was called OHN. So yeah, this is I sort spent of most like... of my twenties playing games on OHN. <laughs> <laughs> nice twinsies. All right. So yeah, I mean, when we started this whole thing, like you guys were. At the top of my list. Um, and then when you, like, I can't, sorry, I'm going to shut up now. Um, these are my friends. Get it out of your system. <laughs> this is the guy that was freaking out at, uh, at in the clubhouse just a moment ago. But it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Damn. There was, uh, there was, like, Lori Allen. She came late. And then all of a sudden her and David Hayter were, like, speaking like they were the boss and, and Snake. You were talking to all these people just just now. Laurie Allen was there as well. I yeah. don't really know what you're doing in the background with Hater or where you're talking to him or how all that's going down. They got iPhones and they're sitting there in their little clubhouse app talking to celebrities, <laughs> just doing like Discord calls and shit, you know. Dude, and then Rob Paulson just dropped in. What? Rob Paulson? Yeah, just dropped in. <laughs> Donatello. Was like, Hi. And Raphael from Ninja Turtles. And then he dropped God. out. I gotta buy an iPhone now just for this fucking app. Get a better phone, man. I just had, it has to be an Apple, not necessarily a better phone. What's the difference? <clears throat> Got you this time. Hey, I'm Fingers. Hey, everyone. This is Days Ahead. And I'm Nitroid. You're listening to the Kojima Frequency. Congratulations, by the way, Nitroid, on finally acquiring your tiger, whatever the hell it is, Snake's Revenge thing. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, ironically not the tiger Metal Gear that I'm really looking for, but this is a close second. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's time for him to change his pin tweet. And then I was like, oh, shit, that's a different tiger thing. Never mind. <laughs> so he's still Damn after Damn you, it. tiger. I feel like I'm the only one who wasn't disappointed. This is, I mean, that was actually a better surprise for me. And then uh, that comic artist, the dude who did the box art for Snake's Revenge, didn't even know that it was on the Tiger Electronic. Oh, that was amazing. I saw that. Somebody owes Dubois some money. <laughs> that blew my mind. Yeah. Did you know it talks? What? Ah. Uh, it talks. What's it say? <laughs> like, like stupid little lines like, there are rations in the next room. You have key card one. Oh, amazing. Yeah, because there wasn't really like Metal Gear Solid, you know, phrases by that point. So it's not going to be like, it's not over yet. You know, like it's, <laughs> or it could say like, I feel asleep. That'd be fun. But. I'm not much of a Metal Gear collector at all. Like I'm so big into the series. I play it like every week. 
But when it comes to having like getting all the merch and having every version of every possible game, I'm useless. I don't think I even own a copy of Subsistence, the original Subsistence right now. I used to, but I don't know where it is. Uh-oh. Is it more, I was going to say, is that because, you know, it, it's not... It's not turning on. You, uh-oh. You pop the batteries. Did it, did <laughs> keep it going, die? keep going. I'm going to perform some surgery here. <laughs> Are we about to have a funeral uh-oh. in this episode? <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, seven's in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is it just because there's no like technical value in keeping those titles, you know, as a as a Metal Gear streamer? I think I would if I was settled in a house that I owned, maybe, and I wasn't in London moving around, having to carry stuff from place to place when I move house. Yeah, I think that would. uh, Yeah, I think when I'm settled, I might start to I might try and build up a proper collection. But until okay. then, I think I'm okay with, you know, just buying digital versions of games when they come out new and trying to keep everything as uh, low as possible. <laughs> that's that's totally fair. Um, I was trying to figure out where where you actually lived, but I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm from Ireland, but I'm I've been living in London for the last like five years. But before then, I lived my whole life in Ireland, west of Ireland. Okay, okay. Yeah, I went to London, like, I want to say a year ago for work. So I understand how the time zone difference can, like, fuck you up. I was, that was me every every morning. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm so used to um, dealing with American time zones, though. Yeah. So I don't know how that messed me up. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, because you run the channel sort of at American prime time, how, how does that fit around your schedule? Yeah, well, it means our schedules often just go all over the place. Streaming in general is one of the hardest things about it is keeping a schedule for me anyway, because you're your own boss, you make your own hours. And, uh, you know, I just have, I don't have much self-control at times. I'm trying to get better at it. And I, some, I'm not too bad with it. But, you know, sometimes I just go all over the place and I'm get waking up in the evening and streaming through the early morning and you know, so, just all over the place. Yeah, I'm not trying to be an enabler or anything like that, but I feel like that's <laughs> sort of your appeal, though, is like, hey, I am in the first floor basement of the nuclear warhead facility. Right. And I'm about to go into the girls' bathroom. Let me show you the five different secrets about this two-second moment. And I don't think there are any secrets in that bathroom, apart from the guy taking a piss, is there? Well, I'm talking about... um I'm talking about the ladies' room when you like you can call, make the different codec calls, and oh, see right. even right now you're just like actually you know I don't know if there's that many <laughs> secrets, but that's that's sort of the novelty, right? Is that like you this game is so full of secrets, and now we have this 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 uh, personified Pandora's box, if you will, that will open, you know, when we get to those like rich rich moments and secrets or whatnot. Right. Speaking of secrets, that thing that uh, just got, I don't know if that was just revealed or it just got brought up, but that uh, thing at the the bridge scene uh, in Metal Gear Solid 3 with the sorrow being on the Kodak. Oh, yeah. I had definitely never seen that, but holy shit, that gave me chills when I put that all together. I was like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you go into um, Razvet, where you meet Sokolov, the boss um, doesn't respond. Yeah. And if you repeatedly call her, eventually the sorrow will come through. And I think he says, 
you know, he says his line, sad, so sad, but it's all distorted and you can't really hear it. Ah. Boss. Really ominous, mm-hmm. isn't it? Metal Gear is always sort of teetered over the edge of horror. Yeah, it's creepy. And I, I, yeah, I had never heard of that until this past week. So There are a lot of guys on Twitter um, doing really good research at the moment, going into all sorts of Japanese interviews and finding out all sorts of information that I had no idea about. And that was one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was Bad Humans who discovered that. Another really yep. crazy thing that he discovered recently was... Um, Maybe people knew about this before, but it was a snake's beard growing back um, in Arsenal gear. If you save in Arsenal gear and come, you know, if you gave him the shaver at the start of the game, um, you know, when you meet him in Arsenal gear, he won't have his beard. He'll be clean shaven. But if you like with the end in MGS3, if the clock goes forward a week and you come back and reload the save, his beard will have grown back. I, and I always thought MGS3 was the first game to really mess around with the clock. Um, but MGS2 did it first. Yeah, we actually just talked about that on the last episode. Yeah, we talked yeah. about that. <laughs> it astonishes me that we are coming up on 20 years <laughs> since that game came out and we are still finding things. Yeah, I know. Madness. Have you streamed that yet? Um, I, I During our last marathon, I showed the beard thing. Yeah, and I think the arcade showed off the sorrow thing last night right after it was discovered because bad humans is in our channel all, all the time mm-hmm. the other thing that that was found recently vamp and solidus will track the player in the harrier as they're flying by i saw that as well yeah yeah what was another one and that was just from a guy who was taking photos in the mode like there's a the the guy who found that he just takes photos in in the metal gear solid games and just picked that up yeah, that's wild. There was um, there was one that I found about out about recently, um, and I, I think this was known for a while, but it was new to me. Um, seeing Johnny in the bathroom with your sensor, with the bomb sensor, I think right. people had known about that for a while. <laughs> and uh, you can pick up the granny's piss on the sensor as well. And unlike Johnny, it comes up as Fat Man's scent. It's the same yellow scent. So now my theory is that Fat Man is Fat Man's special cologne is actually his piss because it's the same thing <laughs> that comes up on the radar as oh, the granny, no. whereas Johnny's scent is red because he's cooking up a big nuke in there. I guess <laughs> it's his own brand. Checks out. That's what I'm going to start calling it from now on. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> the tiger is working, by the way. Oh, nice. You got it. Yeah, it's safe. <laughs> Freaking better be. Yeah, we had a lot of like gaming news happen this week. We got a bunch of stories here in the notes. Resident Evil, we got this uh, lady Dimitrescu measuring in officially at 9 6. So, you know, take that uh, information and do with it what you will. Yeah, I haven't been keeping up with all that. But I played the demo and I enjoyed the demo. Seems like it's going to be pretty. Uh, my wish for a Resident Evil 4 remake, if they were to do it, was that it would be more horror-esque. Yeah. You know, sort of give people what they wanted back. For the people who were disappointed by RE4 when it first came out, maybe give them more of what they would have wanted. Still have it be action-focused, but give it a a much darker tone. And it seems like 
village is kind of doing something similar where there's all this Resident Evil 4 influence with the shopkeeper and yeah. um, the, the setting and the castle and the villages and even the werewolves weren't really in uh, 4, but, you know, it has all that crazy stuff, but it seems like it's going to be darker. So I'm intrigued to play it. Have you ever seen the footage of the uh, the early development footage of Resident Evil 4 when it was very different in tone? With the with like the ghost, I did, yeah, the hook, yeah, yeah, the Hook Man. The I hook almost man, wonder right. if like if if this would be an opportunity to create some sort of like additional mission where you could have that experience. I mean, it's more than likely never going to happen, but but that would be like right. if you're going to remake the game, this is your opportunity to revisit some of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they um they did. It wasn't you know that impactful but they did make a reference or two to 1.5 and the 2 remake um which i've been like inhaling pretty much on pc oh wasn't it with like one of claire's alternate outfits yeah i think it's her name is like elsa walker or something like that her original character concept um so at the very least there has to be some sort of shout out it's Um, funny um with with uh village coming out how everyone's sort of losing their mind over lady dimitrescu and how tall she is uh i don't know if you saw or not but somebody uh i'm guessing a squatter (laughs) got a hold of silenthill.com and put up an image of pyramid head next to a scale that says nine feet and underneath it just says he was first (laughs) (laughs) dude i want to like part of me just wants that to be official and then just be like hey because, like, I don't know, Capcom and Konami had definitely had that, like, survival horror feud before, you know, just like their series. Like Resident Evil versus Silent Hill, you know. Oh, if it was official, that'd be amazing. <laughs> mm. Seems like we might actually be getting some significant new Silent Hill stuff as well, given what Yamaoka said. Yeah. I was going to say, the timing of those two is like, I can't imagine. I just picture somebody at Konami being like, okay, I need to grab this domain. And then going to that and being like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, uh, Pyramid Head's only nine feet with the top of his pyramid, you know, so ladies got details. Uh, details. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope it's a new Silent Hill rather than a Silent Hill 1 remake. And if it is a Silent Hill 1 remake, I hope they get, like, Ito and some of the original team members on board. That would be great. The, the art direction and everything is just so important in Silent Hill, you know? It's all about the all about the art. I'm so worried about that, though. You know, it's if they are making a new game or they're making a remake, whatever comes out. And I'm and, you know, I'm I'm excited to see what they're going to do with it, if that is the case. Mm. But it's not going to be PT. You know, that's always going to be in my mind as like, you know, that was an Icarus moment. They they were flying close to the sun. They got burned and fell to Earth, you know. <laughs> like that's the thing we're never going to get. And it's always going to be compared to. Um, yeah, I, well, I think a lot of the, you know, the, the hardcore silent Hill fans that were there before PT, I don't think they'll mind. I don't think they'll care too much, you know? Oh, probably there, not. there might be yeah. a crowd that are just going to be, you know, wishing it was PT or whatever, but I don't know. I think, um, Especially if there are original team members on board, I think people will be pretty open to something, to whatever it is, you know? If it's original team members, I wonder if it'll go back to sort of that original tone more where 
you know, after Silent Hill 2 and onward, those games sort of steered into the whole psychological aspect a lot harder. You know, you you see what you take with you. Right. Mm. Um, but the first game wasn't like that at all. It was more about the, the, the town and the cult and the history and the and the details there. Um, so I, I wonder, like, where it'll be on that scale. Like, will it lean more towards the first game or towards the later ones? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I remember them saying before, before they disbanded, that they wanted to do, um, they wanted to have a take on daylight horror. They wanted to make a horror game that would be, that would take place during the day. Hmm. I always thought that would be, oh, interesting. be interesting. Makes me think of Mulholland Drive and that infamous uh, jump scare. Oh, right, right. Outside the diner. Mm -hmm. Well, if anybody could do it. We were talking earlier about a possible Code Veronica update, which I think all of like 10 people want, but <laughs> me and Nightshorter were I love two Code of them. Veronica. Okay, now we found a third one. It's yeah, my favorite Resident I would, Evil. <laughs> yeah, I just, I feel like it's so underrated, both in terms of the actual game, obviously, but also um, its plot relevance, because there's a lot of shifts in character arcs because of code veronica um mm. people, code veronica people is more resident evil 3 than resident evil 3 is well it wasn't it supposed to be resident evil 3 and then like resident evil 3 was supposed to be sort of like a side story i do not know i know there's like a history there with 3 and code veronica and there was some sort of agreement they have with sega but i don't know the details yeah. yeah, I thought I thought Code Veronica was a weaker game in many ways, but I loved the uh, just the, the absurdity and uh, hilarity of the story. Yeah. Alfred and Alexia, like Steve, is a huge meme in my channel just for how much <laughs> I love Steve. Everything, every word that comes out of that guy's mouth is pure gold, and the fans reject him. I've seen so many people hate on Steve and all the Resident Evil communities on Twitch. I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> Everything he says is just magic. If they remake Code Veronica, I just... Remake Steve is either going to be incredible or awful. <laughs> I don't know if Steve would work too well in this modern uh, era, though. Would people, If people didn't accept him back then, I feel like he was such a product of that era. Steve Burnside is like 50% of the reason why I want a Code Veronica remake is because I kind of want to see... And the same way they, they changed Leon, which was very subtle, but I really liked it. I want to see that for Steve Burnside. Yeah. I wonder, is he would he still try and grab Claire's ass and shit when she's not looking? And <laughs> didn't, didn't he try to kiss her while that. she was asleep? Yeah, he's, he's a real <laughs> creeper. He was a real uh, horn dog. Can they do that in 2021? I don't like, know. They're, they're taking out butts in Mass Effect, so probably not. Okay, I just, yeah, there's no way. This will uh, not fly in our new Puritan society. <laughs> <laughs> Remove the ass. You're going to have, like, a nice control system for when you have to run from him when he's, like, hulking out. Just don't uh, let the B-team make it, please, so they don't fuck it up like they did with Resident Evil 3. Okay, credit where credit's due, and this is going back to my, like, remake point um, about the characters. They... They, they did one thing good with that. It was remaking Carlos. And if they could do that with Carlos, Granted. I would love to see mm. something similar for Steve. But that's, that's the I'm thing. Saying. They can't make Steve, Steve with hot. new hair. No, they can't do <laughs> that's hot all, Steve. That's all you need. You can't do hot Steve. That would ruin him. It, it doesn't have to be hot, though. Like, Carlos, I can't believe I'm talking about Carlos two weeks in a row. 
and I promise we'll get to, to Metal Gear and OHN questions soon, Three Dog, I promise. Welcome to um, the Resident Evil podcast. No worries. <laughs> no, but like, you know, in the same way, like, like Carlos is supposed to be sort of like a heartthrob in a sense that like he he's he technically saves a damsel in distress. He's flirty and it doesn't really work for the the original one, but I thought he was like he had the perfect balance in the remake, even though the remake was not so great. Um and like with Leon, it's not that not just that he's so much hotter or whatever. It's it's they they really amplify his uh how naive he is. Um, mm. you know, there's that one scene when he goes down and he sees Ben in the jail cell and um he says something like Ben's like, you got to get me out of here. Like he, he mentions Chief Irons and then um, Leon says something like, oh, well, I'm sure the chief had a good reason to keep you in here during, during like the, the zombie apocalypse. apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's those little things that just amplify that 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 innocent Leon whose whose worldview just gets destroyed by this event. So yeah. in the context of Steve Burnside, I would love to see, you know. Maybe not as, I guess, emo as he was in the original, but kind of taking that, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Victim? <laughs> I don't want to say victim, because yeah. I feel like they that's They could make bad. him a more pitiable character, right. probably. Yeah, that's a good word more for it. More sympathetic? Could, could, exactly. Like, yeah. just some somebody you absolutely pity, but you still, like, you still care about. Um but yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking about Resident Evil. We'll, we'll cut that now. Um, this is a Metal Gear podcast, so... <laughs> I don't mind talking um, about all sorts of things, okay? Well, it's it's funny, because earlier when, when you were talking about the sorrow on the bridge scene, um, mm. Metal Gear, you know, just to kind of tie the two together, Metal Gear will occasionally drift into these horror territories, you know? Yeah. Yeah, where it right. just gets really morbid and dark, and it's only you know it only happens briefly, like that or the the hallway in MGS one. Um, but mm. when it does, you're always like, oh, okay, that's a tonal <laughs> shift. Yeah, yeah. I think MGS one in general has a pretty. It verges on horror a lot of the times yeah. in subtle ways, like even when you're crawling through the vents. Uh, at the start of the game, there's that like whirring on industrial sound, and right. it really feels like you're almost in a horror game. Everything's so dark. You get this like reverb on the characters' voices during scenes, and it's uh, it has a pretty oppressive atmosphere. I think that verges on horror. Yeah, appropriately, it's it's the closest to a John Carpenter movie. Mm. And then there's MGS2, which just feels eerie and surreal and kind of uncanny you know you're seeing all these things that have played out before but it's like there's something that's not right about it all oh yeah step to the left it's not really horror but it's unsettling it's not really horror but yeah it's like you're watching the truman show it's like okay this is something something's off here <laughs> yeah that's a good comparison <laughs> I need to make a poster that's just the Truman Show with riding on the front. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, let's let's save that for a title card one day. <laughs> yeah. Um it's funny that you mentioned like sort of that surrealness of Metal Gear because or Metal Gear Solid 2 rather, because um I saw this thread you had. I, I think it was like you or DRK, there was this thread you had about um some of the game over messages, those audio clips that play when you're in Arsenal Gear. And Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. 
I played that game as a kid and I was kind of scared to click those links because just those little subtle changes, um, those like freaked me out for the longest time. Um, even like the whole like change to exist at the end of uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 if you die. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I always forget exist. about that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that stuck with me because it freaked me the hell out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, it. that's interesting. Yeah. Another really weird detail about 4's mission failed screen is, um, you know, it cuts to all these flashbacks. You're seeing this that you're seeing this static and all these things that you've already seen in the game, right? Like little uh, flashes of cutscenes. But in between those, you see Snake being hung up on Mantis's um, puppet strings, which is kind of unnerving. You know, makes it feel like Snake isn't really in control of what he's doing at all. Like he's just being led by Mantis. And of course, Mantis in four is just the most absurd thing. You know, <laughs> so I, the, the, the persona of Psycho Mantis was implanted within Screaming Mantis. So Screaming Mantis was just another puppet being controlled by Psycho Mantis. Why is Psycho Mantis after Snake again? Didn't he want to help him when he died? <laughs> he just, so I have a thought about that. Um, yeah. Have you ever called Rose in MGS4 after dying? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course he has. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. I know. Look who I'm asking, right? Um, one of the conversations she brings up, um, Snake will say how he feels like he's viewing himself outside of his body. He's basically talking about yeah. the player viewing him from third person, right? And Rose speculates that he might have a mild case of depersonalization disorder, right? Yeah. Um, well, one of the symptoms of depersonalization disorder is often described by people. And, and if somebody out here knows more about it than I do, because I am not a medical professional, <laughs> um, I'm not please, a so, financial service. Sorry, just <laughs> right. I am not a medical professional. This does not constitute medical advice. Um, but from what I've read, uh, it seems that, um, one of the common symptoms of depersonalization disorder is what people will call visual snow. Um, where they compare it to like a, a TV signal being lost, where they're just like a disconnect between between. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that between themselves and their body, hmm. like their experience and their physical body. Like it's a very uh, hard to describe break between those two layers. And so mm. you look at the game over screen for MGS4, and what is it? It's static, and it looks like a TV signal's been cut. Hmm. So I wonder if that was kind of an intentional thing there. Yeah. If there's a connection there. Another thing to take note of that might tie into this is obviously the way the game begins with the advertisements and the PMC commercials. Right, and right. The game shows it begins as this TV show. And well, not even just, not even a TV show, as a TV that you can flick through and change channels. And then uh, I guess the, uh, the film comes on after the commercial, which is MGS4. God, those commercials are so trippy. It really is a movie. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it won uh, a world record. Yeah. Or two of them, actually. Another really weird detail that I noticed about the whole Mantis thing, which feels like some kind of commentary from Kojima. Um, at the beginning of Act 5, um, the Act 5 briefing, but well, maybe technically before it's Act 5, but the Act 5 briefing, um, another just absurd scene with all sorts of tonal shifts. But, um, you know, when Mei Ling is given her briefing and Johnny is trying to touch her ass. Um, yeah, that's kind of weird. She, uh, there's, there's a moment where they're all like defeated 
and she says, um, you know, come on, guys, we, we got to think of something. Um, and she reels off one of her quotes. Um, and the quote she says just happens to be the thing that she says after you beat Mantis in MGS1, which you can only get after that scene when she says the tongues of, of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. Um, oh, what's, what does she say after that? Um, the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. Where words are spent, they're seldom spent in vain. And in MGS1, she says that to, to imply that, you know, Mantis wasn't lying with his dying breath. Um, you know, right. I think you should believe him, Snake. People don't usually lie with their dying breath. And that's the quote she says to reinforce that. And that just so happens to be the same thing she says at the beginning of Act 5, which is where you meet Mantis. So very strange. It's also totally ineffectual when she says it. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I guess if I, I, I always looked at it in the context of Mantis, but I guess it kind of makes sense within that scene as well that the, that these could be their dying words. Well, you know, so I, they really need to, you know, come on, guys, our dying words might actually mean something here. You know. <laughs> so I have an alternate theory about that actually, and it's something I've been trying to work out for a while. Um, yeah, go ahead. It's no secret that I do not care much for Metal Gear Solid 4, to put it lightly. Mm. Um, but I think I get what it was going for here. Throughout the game, uh, there is this uh, recurring theme of patterns being followed. Proxies for things, you know, stand-ins yeah. for other things. And so MGS4 is sort of in this weird remixed sort of way, going through the beats of all the previous games of its, of its own mm -hmm. history, right? It's the franchise going through its own history. I've heard some people say that if like Metal Gear Solid 2 is a deconstruction of video games, then Metal Gear Solid 4 is a deconstruction of Metal Gear. Um, and you see these patterns repeated throughout the game. So like MGS4 Act 2 uh, is very reminiscent of MGS3 down to, you know, snake wearing fatigues. Uh, Act four, obviously it's putting you back in Shadow Moses. Um, and you see these recurring visual elements, Raiden standing in for the ninja, uh, Meryl showing mm -hmm. back up. You've got all of the characters you've known from the previous games reappearing, even if there's not really a reason for them to be there, like Vamp. Um, mm -hmm. And throughout the game, this idea of snakes sort of taking responsibility for the past and trying to make right the things that were wrong. He's, he's trying to break that pattern. And as you get closer to the end of the game, the pattern starts breaking down. And I think Mei Ling is an example of that because she's doing what you expect Mei Ling to do to prattle off a quote and inspire you to do the next thing. But it doesn't work because she's just following the pattern and it's not working anymore. You're in uncharted territory. You're starting to do different things and you're going off in a different direction. And, you know, um, there's a, there's a guy, um, James Howell. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I've, I've read that analysis. Yeah. Monstrous births. I think. Yeah. Called, he goes it? into this in far more detail. And I think this is a, I think mm -hmm. the Mei Ling, uh, scene is a, is just another example in his overall thesis. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, the, the proxy thing is interesting because it's like right from the start of the game, Snake at the grave standing in for Big Boss doing the salute. Right. Um, 
And uh, people always say um, when we play that game, like, why is Snake saluting there? But it always gets misinterpreted as the boss's grave as well. But like, why is Snake at the boss's grave? You know, because you think you, you associate that scene with the end of MGS3 and people naturally just think it's the boss, which makes sense. But um, yeah, it's interesting. The, the, going back to the, the Mantis connection and her using that specific quote that she said after Mantis, it kind of feels like it's kind of feels like it's Kojima acknowledging what he's doing to Mantis in a way, you know, like I'm bringing Mantis back and he's after Snake again, which doesn't really make any sense. Right. But the fact that he puts that quote there, which was there to um, imply that he wasn't lying with his dying breath is just very strange. You know, there's that sort of contradiction and MGS4 is all about those contradictions. Yeah, he, he's there because you're playing Metal Gear and you expect him to be there. Yeah, yeah. Raiden is the big one, I think, that bothers me in 4 when it comes to characters who are like contradictions of their previous selves or characters who didn't really grow in the way that in the ways that they were supposed to or how wow. it seemed they were supposed to. God, don't get me started. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Raiden... Just uh, riding, becoming a drunk and, uh, you know, all that stuff really doesn't sit well with me. But here's here's a summary of Raiden's character arc. You know, hey, you know, maybe I should stop trying to be a copy of Solid Snake. Maybe I should try to be my own person. Snake's like, yeah, that's the mm. spirit. That's what you should do. And then Raiden's like, I'll be Gray Fox instead. <laughs> <laughs> Solid Snake's just like, shit. Yeah, Shinkawa's uh, words about Raiden in 4 was fascinating. He said, Raiden appears as the cyborg ninja in 4 to, uh, to symbolize the abuse he took for being the character he was in MGS2. And he was speaking with regards to how sort of inhuman he is or how he like literally lost his, his humanity, his body. You know, how he's pretty much entirely cybernetic. He has the spine, the upper half of his head, his heart but not much else is human. Um, so there's that whole meta thing. So, you, you know, we, we, you think when you see Raiden as the cyborg ninja, you think, oh, what a, what a badass. But you forget that he has to suffer to become the cyborg ninja because Gray Fox had to, Gray Fox didn't become a badass ninja because he wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> it was not by choice. It was the result of all these experiments. So if Raiden is to become this ninja, he has to suffer for it. And he, uh, he really did, but not many people seemed to care too much. They were just happy to see the to see him back as. This I mean, he got badass. jacked for his clothes in MGS three, and then <laughs> run over by the Shagohod in a parody video. Yeah, he's punished, Jack. <laughs> and then there's and and then his development in Rising is just like it just seems like a joke. Um, in in Rising, you know, he gets his happy ending in four, but no, he's back, and now he's embracing his inner fucking killer. Yeah. You know, he's embracing his uh, his past as a child soldier and he loves tearing people up and making mince meat of them. I always thought that was just kind of I, funny after four. You know, four, four kind of butchers him, but then tries to give him a, a happy ending at the end and then rising just <laughs> then brings him just back out of uh, that happy <laughs> ending again. Psych! I am immensely curious about what that original script for Metal Gear Solid Rising oh, was like. Man. Yeah. And yeah, th that would make like the, the transition between MGS2 riding and MGS4 riding just makes so much more sense. Like, you know, we would have that context of instead of just these opposite sides of him, it's like, oh shit, okay. All of a sudden he's a badass. Yeah. Yeah. 
It might have made his development in four easier to swallow. Yeah. And when we take into consideration sort of that that morbid meta message of how he had to suffer in order for people to actually appreciate him, um, if they had applied that to the original script of Rising, I would have like dug into it. Yeah. I'm I'm okay with them having like doing this sort of meta thing in four and having the characters be shaped by things that happen outside of the series. I just wish they made it more I wish they made it make more sense within the story of the actual game. You know, you get to that call with Rose and when she talks about him getting drunk and shit. And it's like you can't just undo a whole game's worth of character development in a in in a call like that where you yeah. click your fingers and oh, he's just a drunk and uh memories resurfaced from Liberia. And like, sure, like if you if you think realistically, uh, what could happen to a person realistically? He had a terrible upbringing. He had a terrible life. It would make sense that these things come back. Yeah. But in an in a storytelling sense, in a narrative sense, it doesn't really make much sense when we go through a whole game for him to change. And when he has this big realization at the end of two, or he becomes his own man and throws away the tags, and you know, it's uh, it's this moment of enlightenment and. You can't, I, for me anyway, it's, you can't just undo it in a, in a codec call like that. You know, you need to flesh it out more. And maybe the original rising, the, re, the original rising story maybe was going to make that easier to swallow and flesh it out more. I don't know. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head um, with MGS4 because it had a strong yeah. meta narrative, but a weak narrative. Yeah. 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 Cause like when you talk to people about stuff like that, you like imagine, you know, like you said, it's like, yeah, if you think about it and like put it together, it's like, yeah, well, he did grow up eating, you know, gunpowder and all that stuff. Yeah. That's, that's bound to probably bubble up as Don't knock you know, it till you PTSD try it. later. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We still need to get that cookbook out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things like the more you think about, the more it makes sense. But if you were to just like put it mm-hmm. in one presentation, it's like, yeah, this didn't really make sense how they just jumped from there. But, Another really strange uh, detail in two is how they um, claim that Jack was in was was actually in Foxhound and did work for the real Roy Campbell. Oh God, yeah. Like, what's I hate up that. with that? <laughs> it's really strange. Like it's like it, it's again. It's another thing that I feel like has that it has to be on purpose because it's just like it's such a major part of MGS two that they obviously didn't forget about it. Uh, and it just makes me think, you know, was is the MGS2, did we play, does another version of MGS2 exist in 4's world? Yeah, it's called the band Destiny. Did we play a completely <laughs> different MGS2 to the MGS2 that actually happened? You know, this, is in the, uh, this is in the Ghost Babble timeline. They uh, they forgot to program in the bad ending for MGS2, so we all got, right. all got the good ending when the bad ending was canon. Mm. All right, if we're airing grievances on MGS4 here, can I just say, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. One of my biggest gripes is the fact that they just sort of gloss over the fact that Arsenal gear rammed like half a mile into Manhattan. <laughs> and they just are like, oh yeah, the Manhattan incident. And I get that this happened like, you know, half a decade ago. But yeah, like that's sort of a big deal we should see a little bit more of like what the aftermath of that is. That's, yeah. They you can't um, gloss over that. MGS four does a lot of glossing over where it, you know, when MGS two picks up it, 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 um, what's the, how do I say it? 
I feel like it, I don't know, I was going to say like it treats you with more respect or something, but I don't really, that's not really what I want to say. <laughs> you know, with how they bring, with how they bring Gerlukovich back and all these little details yeah, that were right. part of one story. MGS4 doesn't really do that, you know? It MGS4, doesn't bring back like, subtle details. and It kicks in the door and is like, that's a nice MGS2 you've got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> yeah. If I could, if I could make a comparison here, uh, and people are either gonna get, laugh at me or get enraged or think I'm stupid, one of those three. Um, it kind of reminds me of Game of Thrones in a sense that I appreciated and watched Game of Thrones in the same way I appreciated the second game, second Metal Gear Solid, because there was an effect and a reaction to that effect. You know, mm. like you said, the Galukovich soldiers, how they transitioned after the tanker event and how they kind of were under the control of Solidus and Dead Cell. Um, you know, even how the tanker event itself affected like the greater world. That was and, you know, like with Game of Thrones, how Ned's death kind of rippled down, you know, the entire plot line. And then you get to like Metal Gear Solid 4, like you guys said, and there's no... There's no reaction, just like in, in Game of Thrones, you know, by season six, seven, eight, you know, you see these tremendous events, but you don't get to see sort of the reaction to them, which, you know, the reaction mm. is sort of the highlight of your experience. Days, are you saying that Sonny is Bran? No. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Have you guys heard the theory that Sonny is the way she is because snake tranquilized olga while she was in her early <laughs> oh stages God. of pregnancy i yeah. think i mentioned yeah, well, that I, <laughs> people joke about that all the time and uh i just think it's kind of a funny little thing you know i don't i'm not sure if anyone really takes it that seriously it's just the, <laughs> that's so bad i mean <laughs> i just i just i feel for the girl so maybe maybe in some ways i kind of wish that happened to her instead of just being stuck on a plane for her whole life. I don't know. Dude, um, I was the yeah. dumbass kid who like was like, huh, check this out. And I pumped her full of like 40 tranks in the head. <laughs> 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 like you can see each one. It's amazing. Look at this detail. Uh, I guess one way to defend the uh, the Arsenal crash would be that, you know, the world is when you jump into MGS4, you know, the world has just been completely changed by the Patriots and what happened in MGS2, or at least that's how I look at it. You know, the, the S3 plan uh, right. succeeded and the Patriots were able to create that world that was just consumed by war. And, you know, they created Outer Heaven, basically, a really controlled version of Outer Heaven consumed by all these PMCs. So I guess there's not much, you could argue maybe there's not much point in going over what happened after the Arsenal incident since, you know, the world has been changed so vastly since then. That it's not as relevant, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was never really supposed to have a follow-up like that anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's funny as well, another meta detail. At the start of uh, the Act 1 briefing, they do acknowledge it. But I think the only thing they say about the Arsenal crash is that um, the Manhattan incident triggered a serious public backlash. That's you what the think? colonel says about it. <laughs> Hey, yo, who the fuck's thing is this? What are y'all doing up there? Well, I want to know how they got rid of it. Did they just throw it into reverse? Like, beep, beep, <laughs> beep. <laughs> the thing that always got me is like people just sort of walking around just as anything is normal. Yeah. I'm like, I would get the fuck out of there as soon as, as far away as possible. 
They acted like they were going on their lunch break. Yeah. You can kind of justify it in two, though, because that whole sequence is, again, very surreal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, very dreamlike. Feels very dreamlike. They're walking around normally. Everyone else is in slow motion. I think it works. Like, I like, I really love the surreal it's, vibe of it. It's funny. Um, the segment they had to cut out where Arsenal gear plows into New York and how you don't actually see mm. it in the final game. Um, in a weird way, the fact that they just sort of cut to post-destruction sort of helps it in a way. Uh, I was it, it talking about this with someone state. else. Yeah. Um, although yeah, I wonder I was talking if about maybe this the... Go ahead. I am. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I was talking about this with someone very recently. That's crazy that you bring that up because I i don't think I heard anyone else bring that up before. But yeah, like last week I was talking to a friend of mine. He said it almost adds to the surreal, the, like just the, the surreal chaos of the previous scene um, where Ocelot is explaining everything and, yeah. and Liquid comes out and fortune dies and just all that madness that happens at the end of arsenal gear and then just suddenly you're falling off arsenal on top of federal hall it kind of works in a way <laughs> yeah i was gonna say the the setting too like you go from that sort of surreal octagon for the the arena with the rays and then you have that scene like you said um and then it goes down to federal hall and it's very like cracked it's you know it's stone it's it's very solid um it's very concrete um, so that juxtaposition, yeah, it it, it works. Mm. So here's my thought. Um, there are some images of that removed cutscene in um, the Metal Gear Solid 2, the making, the book that was released in Japan. It's not much, but you can see just like little snippets out of little frames. And oh, so I cool. wonder if the intent there was to have this surreal experience up to a point, and then you sort of get slammed back down to the ground back into reality you know oh there goes gravity yeah. right um <laughs> and so it becomes very real in that last leg of the game yeah god i'd love to see that so much yeah people are just like oh that's new york for you <laughs> that's that's why they didn't react they're like it's just another day yeah it's just new yorkers they're just fine with it some guy just sees arsenal gear and he's like i'm walking here <laughs> you can't park that here <laughs> somebody's gonna move this thing come on i got a 5 30. oh man oh boy <laughs> did y'all want to talk about that uh group that was working on the different like they were like rebuilding the levels in snake eater not doing a full remake like Games Radar reported. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> not oh God at the guys doing it. That's cool that yeah. they're doing it. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Shout out. Yeah. Oh God at the people who are reporting on it falsely. Looking at you, yeah. Games Radar. And and I've seen them do this multiple times, uh, where there'll be a story and it'll just get spun into something completely inaccurate. But hey, it gets clicks, so who cares? Yeah, I uh, as soon as I saw that um, that that headline, my first reaction was, "Okay, what's uh, what's the what's the real story here?" Um, but the project itself is very well. I don't I don't mean for this to be a hate jerk about like journalism. <laughs> no, it's and just to explain what to everybody listening what we're talking about. Um, there was a recent report that went out that said a group of modders for Metal Gear Solid Five started remaking. Metal Gear Solid 3 in MGS5 using the, or, I'm sorry, MGSV. I'm going to get yelled at again. Um, <laughs> it's interchangeable. It is. Um, 
But yeah, the story is essentially modders are recreating MGS3 in MGSV's engine, and that's not at all what they're doing. What they're actually doing... They're using FoxKit, right? Yeah, yeah, FoxKit, which is this in-development tool for creating custom maps in Unity for MGSV. So they can just kind of, you know... The goal is that eventually you'll be able to create a map using in-game assets or external assets, and then you'll be able to just inject that right into MGSV. And then using some of the existing tools, you can create your own missions and objectives and, you know, you know, take it from there. Um, but what they're all they're doing is just trying to remake some of the areas from MGS3 using MGSV's existing assets. As I understand, that's what they're trying to do. Like they're not, they don't have this huge remake project in mind, but that's how it got reported. And that's how the story got spread. To be honest with you, I feel like that being leveraged as a, like a, like a story to take off about the actual modding tools. I think that's a more interesting story than, you know, just remaking three. I mean, that's exciting, but yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that tool. I'll play it. Yeah, I'll definitely give it a shot. They've been working on this tool for at least a couple of years now, I think. I don't know who specifically is working on it. I don't think the modding team that's working on these maps is the same team as the one that made the tool, but I could be wrong. Um, but apparently the story has spread far enough that they had to update their Discord to have a disclaimer that says, no, we're not remaking MGS3. Oh, no. Yeah, because then that's the thing, too. You're at the risk of getting shut down and getting a, a cease and desist at that point, right? Yeah. Instead of it just being, like, a mod, you know? It's, like, categorized differently, so I guess that's why it matters. I just zone out of so much remake news. Whenever I see it, I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to wait until some official thing comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome welcome to our lives as the host of the <laughs> yeah, Consumer this- Frequency. I think about it fairly often, you know, because as a, as a streamer, you're always getting asked about, you know, all sorts of questions. But what do you think of these remake rumors? What do you think of these remake <laughs> you rumors? You got the inside so, scoop. <laughs> yeah. So just after so much of that, I've just started to zone out of the conversation, really. But I don't think that conversation is going anywhere anytime soon. We're going to be talking about remakes for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you know if a remake happens, these same people who are making shit up are going to be like, oh, we knew it all along. Told you so. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's probably going to happen eventually, you know. Yeah. All these big titles are probably going to get remade, so, you know. I mean, if, if there's money on it, you can probably bet it's going to be remade. Um, yeah. But you can't really tell when, so. At least remakes for video games make more sense than remaking movies you know with how technology advances and you know you can really do different things now with games that were out in the ps1 era and you know really reinvent them with films it's much harder to reinvent a a remake i think yeah yeah i'd agree i think we're good as far as uh codec moments which is what we call our current events um so yeah i feel like this is a pretty good time to probably dive into questions about you um sure yeah so let's see here i i guess you know we could start with the obvious i i mean i feel like at least from my time at twitch um you guys have been there pretty early definitely before streaming became a big thing um Mm. so i guess obvious first question but like how how did this begin how did ohn start from twitch it's a it's a long story. I'll try to cut out any uh, 
details that aren't worth mentioning. But forgive me if I do ramble on a bit. I'm not really used to uh, telling the story, really. But um, and it goes way back. We started on Justin TV before Twitch was a thing. Oh God, I haven't heard um, that name in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we started, that's what Twitch was before Twitch became a thing. Um, you know, Justin TV evolved, morphed into Twitch. Um, but yeah, when I started streaming, I, I discovered Justin TV because I wanted to watch a football match or a soccer match, um, as you'd call it in the US, um, some Champions League game. And um, I noticed that Justin TV, you know, because it was the Wild West back then on JTV. Oh, yeah. People were streaming. South Park episodes. Yeah, and, no copyright claims or anything, yeah. Yeah, I think people were even streaming porn sometimes. You know, it was anything goes. Uh, anything and everything went on it. And, you know, I was I was looking for some football match and then I saw, huh, it has a gaming section. And I, that just intrigued me because I was into games. Um, and back then, you know, sometimes there'd be less than 20 people live. Um, so this was when it was really in its infancy. And I remember... Um, thinking when I saw it, I was like, huh, like this, I feel like this should be way more popular. <laughs> and of course, I just didn't realize that I was there at the very beginning. So yeah, I saw people streaming games. And I said, oh, I, this, this looks fun. I think I'll, uh, I think I'll have a go at it. And especially when I found out that I could do it for free, you know, get free streaming software, play on, you know, play games on an emulator with free streaming software and um, that's, that's what I did. So what year was that? Like when you started? Oh, that was, I think 2010. Yeah, okay. And you know, like, yeah. I, obviously I wasn't thinking about making a career out of it or anything. I just saw people streaming games that looked like it was, it would be a fun thing to do. People talking to like-minded people in the chat. And, um, I think another thing that, um, I'm really grateful for, this is kind of strange is that, um, it sort of revitalized my love for games. Um, at the time, I guess we were like a couple of years into the PS3 era, and the, the PS3 generation really started to kill my love for games. Um, you know, the, all the, the first-person shooter craze, um, which I got into a bit. Like, I'd play Call of Duty with my friends and stuff like that, but it, it just felt it was worlds apart from what I was used to, you know, growing up on PS1 and PS2. and with all the classic Final Fantasies and the classic Metal Gears and everything. Yeah, some of that magic started to fade. Yeah, I became really disillusioned with modern games. You know, I'd be reading reviews about GTA 4 and FF13 and Uncharted 1, and I remember just really being underwhelmed by a lot of these big new releases that were coming out, and, you know, things just started to feel way too streamlined and just, uh, yeah, it that generation just started to kill my love for games a bit. So when I saw people streaming, um, and I, and I, you know, and I saw that that looked like a fun thing that I might enjoy, that kind of got me back into games, you know, cause I didn't have the tech. To, for one thing, I didn't even have the tech to play modern games, even if I wanted to. So if I was going to stream, I'd be forced into playing older games on emulators. So I, I so I went back and played, all the classic Final Fantasies and, you know, that I loved growing up, FF7, FF8, FF9, um, Silent Hill 1. And playing those, playing those old classics, some of my old favorites, really just got me into games again. And I think I just started being a lot more critical about my purchases. I started to think a lot more about my tastes and everything because I became a bit of a zombie, I think, 
in the, at the start of that PS3 era. You know, I would just buy all the new big releases and I just felt like I wasn't really enjoying things. I was, wasn't really enjoying games. I was just doing it to pass the time. And um, yeah, streaming really got me back into games. I feel that. Okay. Which was great. I'm not sure if yeah. you, did you guys have any, did you guys, I, I reckon a lot of people might have a similar experience. Maybe not with the PS3 generation. Maybe it was with PS4 or whatever. Uh, but yeah, did you guys ever have an experience like that where you became sort of disillusioned with? Uh... Yeah, that's been my like current problem with games lately. Like this, this, this past year like really hit hard. I was just like, man, I am straight up not having a good time with a lot of this, and this is it's eating up a lot of my time. And I'm finishing these games, but I'm just not having a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. But then when I would go back and play like just indie, like the new indie stuff that was coming out, I was like, hell yeah. And I, I think I'm just more like of a retro type gamer. Just some of these big, long narrative games. I'm just, even like cyberpunk, I was just kind of like, meh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not having a good time. So yeah, definitely this past mm. generation for me as well. Just everything that I thought would be a really amazing time has just been kind of underwhelming. Um, yeah. Yeah. The biggest of which, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, but Final Fantasy VII Remake would be a good example. Yeah. Uh, of one that just, yeah, I really of, enjoyed the FF7 Remake. I did too, but, but the more I sit on it, the more it just, it's kind of fading from my memory. And I don't know if that's just because I'm older and my tastes are different and my expectations are higher and, I have a sense of nostalgia for the older stuff, or if it's just because this stuff isn't as good as the things that were made previously. I mean, everybody gets older and mm. says, Oh, it was so much better back in my day. But like, is that actually true this time? <laughs> or, I mean, or is it just me? Yeah. I don't, I, I, I had issues with the FF seven remake, like certain, you know, I'm unsure about where it's going, which yeah. I think is fitting considering the game kind of ends on that note. It ends on a, on a feeling of uncertainty, you know? Yeah. Uh, whatever Aerith says about terrifying, boundless freedom or whatever, you know, there's there's an atmosphere of uncertainty at the end. So I think a lot of it's a lot of my a lot of my negative feelings about the game hinge on how they follow it up. Yeah. And maybe that's something that will change. Uh, I don't know how, to, how they're going to do the second one, but it is kind of funny to have a game talk about endless freedom when it's kept you on rails for the past two dozen hours <laughs> you know? yeah well i guess it's fitting in a way you know she's talking about this boundless right. freedom that's that's coming and this is when you get into the open world even yeah. though the open world wasn't really an open wasn't that much of an open world in the original game you were sure still like going it, to cam to the chocobo farm across the marsh um you know there were optional things to do but um it was still pretty linear you know yeah but at the time you know, when you leave Midgar that first time, you're like, oh, my God, this is the actual game. I thought I was yeah. playing the yeah. actual game. Yeah, yeah. Like, it blows your mind. Yeah, what a moment. Yeah, it's so, it's it's the world map, you know. You see this big world map, and even though the path you might be on, even though the path is linear that you're on, you see this huge map, and you see that you're going to be going to all these places. So you just get that instant sense of scale. You know? Yeah, you see the other continents and shit when you open it up, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I don't know, man. I'm I'm with you, man. I think th there's something there's something missing in these games that have been coming out lately. And I, I don't know. It may just be that we experienced those those retro games when we were a kid, and it was just like that much more magical. Maybe it's, or just, what's missing is youthful idealism. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's, I don't know, like, we gotta maybe ask, like, this generation of kids growing up with this generation of games, like, are they that into them, or are they just kind of like, yeah, this yeah. is kind of weak. And if they go back and play Metal Gear Solid 2, you know, if they're like, hell Those yeah. Those kids sure love Fortnite. Yeah, I don't know. I, and I guess, like, growing yeah. up in that social situation, too, where it's like, got the newest skin, bro. It's like, no, beat him mm. up, you know? I don't know how the fucking elementary schools are going these days, but that's how I imagine it. I also try to consider, um, you know, how the game industry is involved in a, in a business sense that, you know, when we were playing games, a lot of these developers or these development companies, they were focused on, hey, we're just a bunch of creatives. We want to make something cool. Um, let's get the funding and, and make these games. Whereas today, you know, it's it's this huge business where you have like these corporate folks trying to figure out what is the the most efficient way to monetize a game. And yeah, that's yeah. sort of the, the goal or the core. So yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to be like old lady, like this is shit, but, no, but there are very clear, yeah, they're very clear yeah. differentiators and circumstances between, between the generations. And besides PC games, I mean, they didn't have patches or updates. So they were worried about making like a good game that was going to go out finished and like, people are going to like it. You know, now they're just like, yeah, we'll just put it out. They'll buy it. Fuck it. Whatever. It'll crash their system. And now we have early access. Delete their, uh, their save file and then corrupt it later. And they'll have to start all over <laughs> cyberpunk. God damn it. <laughs> well, it's, um, I'm glad I got out before that, that whole patch situation happened too. I, I oh yeah. It was like, Patch 1.1 or something like that, too, was breaking stuff. I can't, like, I have, if I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard a game say, um, or somebody say, yeah, that game is good now, like they fixed it. Um, yeah. That's, that's That's a new phrase. That, yeah, that is, that is like (laughs) a trope now in game development. So, how did you meet? The other streamers of Outer Heaven. You got DRK. Yeah, DRK and uh, and Knight, who doesn't really work with us anymore. But um, yeah, I met them both on on JTV as well. They were there in the early days. Um, like I said, I sort of became disillusioned with the with the PS3 year and went back to my old classics, and that sort of got me into streaming. Um, and yeah, I didn't really play much Metal Gear. Um, at all, all, at all, at the start. So I mainly played Final Fantasy, and that's how I met Knight because he played a lot of Final Fantasy as well. And uh, DRK, I think he still does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, well, not all the time, but yeah, occasionally. Um, and um, DRK was the first to really start off the whole Metal Gear uh, thing. He's when he started streaming. He mainly did Metal Gear. He did Final Fantasy VIII um, quite a bit as well. Nitro's favorite. Yeah, he would do a lot of Metal Gear, and I just found him because. I was a Metal Gear fan. I was looking through JTV channels. <laughs> One other person is streaming Metal Gear. <laughs> You're like, hey. Yeah. I just got to know him as uh, as a viewer. You know, I was just a viewer in his uh, in his channel, just hanging out with everyone else. And yeah, like it's crazy to think back on those days, you know, because I didn't even talk on Mike for the first few years of streaming. Same with DRK. And he'd still get a decent audience. Um, I, again, I can't remember what numbers... We, we were really bringing in back then or how many numbers DRK was bringing in. But yeah, for the time, pretty decent crowds. But yeah, no mic, just talking to people in chat through text. Just crazy. Like, I don't think, <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone does that now, or at least people who are who are trying to get an audience or people who have a decent audience. I'm not sure if anyone talks 
through chat. I think the only the only time I've seen something without any commentary uh, outside of purposefully out of commentary is like salty bet. I can't remember the last time I've heard a a stream without commentary. Yeah, so Knight got to know him as well because he was a Metal Gear fan. Um and they then started doing marathons together where mm-hmm. you know we do these it's kind of what we do now, even way back then. Yeah. Even way back then, you know, the marathons were a thing. That's always been kind of at the core of what we do, even since the very early days. Um, but yeah, they would marathon together and do these big nonstop 24-hour marathons. Maybe they went beyond 24-hour marathons. I can't really remember. I can't, can't really remember the structure of it back then. But yeah, you know, we would, they would do those big streams. Um, and unfortunately I wasn't really able to join them, um, until I, until like 2012, because I was living at home, uh, with my parents in 2010, 2011, and I just had terrible internet. It wasn't possible to stream all these other games and I couldn't even afford the equipment anyway back then. But yeah, when I moved out, I joined up with them and that's when it really started, I guess we we just when when Justin TV became Twitch, um, we thought we should sort of merge under one channel, which is what we did for many many years, um, until very recently, where we're doing our you know where we have separate channels again, but we're still helping each other. Yeah, I mean it's it's you guys are still doing a great job, and I think you guys just did what a three day marathon last weekend. Yeah, yeah, we usually do five day, you know, where we do the whole Kojima saga. Um, mm-hmm. you know, doing like, you know, in-depth playthroughs, sh- showing all the Easter eggs, um, all the interesting optional story related calls, um, talking about the games and, um, you know, just discussing things with chat, whatever comes up. All the remake questions. All the remake questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which yeah. <laughs> is your favorite for the five millionth time? <laughs> but yeah, we, um. Yeah, we just joined up, you know, we all had similar, we had similar interests. We were all big into Metal Gear and we thought it would be cool if we teamed up, you know, because we, especially when it, you know, when it comes to these big marathons, we couldn't do those solo, obviously. And we just thought it was a cool concept, you know, Um, these big in-depth marathons. And it's always great just showing people new things, you know, because these games are crazy, you know, we're still discovering new things. and. I don't know. I don't really, I'm still, I'm still not tired of it. I don't know how, but yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not tired of it. It's always fun when we do these big marathons. We'll, you know, cause I, when you, when you replay these games again and again, I feel like I'm always going to, even if I don't discover something new, I might think about something in a different light. And I think that's why I just love MGS2 so much. The more I replay too, just the more I love it and the, just the different things I see in it. Although I guess you could say that for for the games I don't really like as well, like four. Yeah, just like the more the more you play the series, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They're endless. They're endlessly replayable. I think you're always going to see something new when you when you play them, whether it be act whether it is actually new content or just seeing something in a different light. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And you know, to the point of those marathons, I do think that as a product in itself has evolved over time as well as as your channel has grown. Mm. Um, you know, obviously you 
started having delineations, things like, you know, oh, we're going to do like a big boss marathon or, oh, we're going to do in-depth stories. Um, But there's also like a lot of engagement that has evolved over time. Um, The one thing that kind of sticks out in my mind is how every sort of like decision that you can make in these games has a donation um, yeah, yeah. Thing now, so like, <laughs> well, we only we we try to limit that. You know, we don't want to be too greedy, but um, mm-hmm. we we mainly just do that for one and three. You know, if Meryl's people can donate for Meryl's fate, which was actually started by um, chat. You know, we didn't really start that. Oh, okay. Um, but um, yeah, we do. We have those those bidding wars for Meryl's fate and the end's fate how you dispose of the end because obviously there are three different ways you can do that <laughs> you should um now you should do one for uh snake's beard should you keep the beard during <laughs> arsenal gear <laughs> should we shave him no. or not no nah, you see i don't i don't want to i don't want to gamify the stream too much yeah um, I, I, right. I i already like people really love the merrill bidding war like i feel like even if i became a millionaire you know if i became a millionaire i probably would would feel like that would be a little bit too much. You know, I have all this money and I'm still, you know, sucking the money out of chat for this Meryl thing. Right. <laughs> but I, I really think that chat just loves the, the Meryl. Nah, yeah, uh, that's war. perfect. Um, <laughs> so I don't think, I don't think we would ever get rid of that. Didn't somebody um, a few days ago, or not, a few, um, like a week or so ago, like they donated like a thousand to kill Meryl. Oh yeah, Mint was uh, suitably named. Yeah, one of our viewers, <laughs> Mint, was just unbelievably generous during the last marathon. I think he gifted maybe four thousand dollars worth. Wow! Uh, oh my wow. god! Shout out to Mint. Yeah, like he gifted because he, he he gifted subs as well. You know, he gifted a few hundred subs. He uh, donated two thousand dollars to me, five hundred to DRK. He 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 um. And, you know, he's donated thousands and thousands to us before as well. So we're lucky to have very uh, generous people. It's hard to feel like you deserve it. You know, suddenly all this money is being thrown at you in the the middle of a stream. And uh, it can be hard to know what to say to that. You know, you just feel like I'm just here playing Metal Gear, you know. It's uh, crazy. And not even just in a sense that you're playing, oh, I'm, I'm getting all this money playing video games. But you're getting this money, you know, diving into something that you're so passionate about. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's something that comes effortlessly, if you will. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people are attracted to as well. And I think it's because, you know, if you're a new viewer, um, there's a good chance you're going to see something you haven't seen before. Um, oh, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I remember when I, you know, I played when I first when I was first going through the series, I thought I knew about all the all you know. I thought I knew about the majority of the Easter eggs and the optional calls. And Jesus Christ, I was barely scratching the surface. Of, <laughs> That's uh, how you guys made me feel when I started watching you. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a rabbit hole. Yeah, like it, it's like it's. It feels uh, almost wrong to to call them Easter eggs because they're like such a big part of the game. There's so many of them. Does it still classify as an Easter egg if they're if the whole game is just covered in them? Yeah. And a lot of the time, they feel like they're more than just, oh, look at this funny little thing. Like they'll tie into the themes in interesting ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it, they were thought about. They weren't just, it wasn't just, oh, let's just do a silly thing here. You know, it's they tried to tie it into the, oftentimes anyway. Obviously, there are lots of silly things, but... 
oftentimes they'll try and tie those details in, into the themes and everything, which is just great. Maybe that's why modern games suck. We were spoiled. We grew up on fucking Metal Gear, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a high standard. I, I still love a lot of modern games. No, nothing's ever going to beat that tanker. Yeah. Like, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, FromSoft's games. Like, I love Souls, Bloodborne. Bloodborne, which is, you know, is fairly new. It's like five years old. That's maybe my favorite game ever. Um, I, the other games came out. The Last Guardian, which I really loved. That was a polarizing game, but I, I loved it. Adored, <laughs> I adored that game. Good old uh, bird dog. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Ueda's games in general. Looking forward to seeing what he's doing next. Uh, Yoko Taro, Nier Automata, obviously, um, was was a big one that a lot of people really enjoyed. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy modern games. I'm just a lot more careful about my purchases now. I yeah, think. for sure. I tried to challenge myself like a month ago. I said, okay, I'm going to buy a game that I have no interest in and see if I like it. And it was the first time I did that in a, in a long time. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to try one of these new releases, something that I have no interest in, and just see if I get pleasantly surprised. Um, and the game was uh, Ghost of Tsushima, and I just didn't take to it at all. I saw trailers for it, I had no interest, um, but I said, well, let's just try it out. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised, but I just didn't get into it at all. So I think I'm just going to go back to my original philosophy <laughs> and just really be careful about what I buy so I don't get too disappointed. I was waiting for you to say like some infamously like shitty game, and <sighs> then you said Ghost of Tsushima, and I'm like, okay, yeah, he he should probably, yeah, he's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to trying to take a jab at Ghost of Tsushima either. You know, just I just didn't really vibe with it. You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like that's sort of the gold standard in terms of you know the modern AAA game. So. Mm. You know, I feel like if if that can't tide you over, then yeah, maybe this generation might not <laughs> might not scratch that itch. Yeah. So has there been a game from the past year or so that's kind of clicked with you? Um. Oh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think what games came out recently. FF Seven Remake, which I enjoyed a lot, even the issues I even though I did have a fair amount of issues with it. Um. I'm trying to think of. Did other you play The Last games. of Us? Um, yeah, I actually enjoyed The Last of Us 2 quite a bit. Right. Again, I thought it was, I thought it stumbled more than the first game. Um, and it wasn't as tight. I but thought the stealth elements were where it really shined. I'm, I, I'm not really like a huge, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a, I was a huge fan of the first game either. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 it was weird. The first time I played The Last of Us, I wasn't crazy about it at all. You know, I just didn't really connect to Joel and Ellie and their relationship. Um, but the second time I played it, for some reason I did. I guess it's weird, you know. Sometimes your enjoyment of a game might depend on the mood you're in at the time when you play it. Oh, for and sure. And I think that's. I think that probably happened to me with The Last of Us One, because I really didn't connect to it at all the first time I played it, and then the second time I, um, I really did. And then with The Last of Us Two, um, yeah, I thought it stumbled a bit more and it was a bit over long, um, but I thought it had some some really uh, powerful moments, like the. The museum sequence with Ellie as a kid and Joel, man, that really got to me. The space the shuttle tape, scene, yeah, uh, I thought that was really, really great. Maybe my favorite scene out of out of um, both of the games. I thought that was just, uh, yeah, really touching. weren't you um weren't you going through Hitman Three recently as well? What what was sort of your overall experience with that? Yeah, the Hitman games are good fun. Yeah, really, really good fun playing those. Playing, was playing Yakuza, the new Yakuza game earlier as well. Good fun with that too. Jesus, 
Yakuza rivals Metal Gear when it comes to cutscene length yeah. and the amount oh, of yeah. cutscenes. <laughs> and, and in tonal shift. Jeez, I like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, in absurdity. Yeah. God, like the first four hours of uh, Yakuza 7, I feel like there's maybe 45 minutes of gameplay in total. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I guess it depends on what you do, but yeah, I don't think you're really given many... I don't think you're given many choices at the start to even do mini games and stuff like that. I think you're the most part uh, roped into doing the story and yeah it's crazy um crazy long scenes but entertaining i'm enjoying the story well um i think talking about modern games is kind of a good segue um and to something else we wanted to kind of talk to you about as you know not just a streamer but you know sort of the flagship metal gear streamer what's it like um to stream and to be sort of a public face in such a such a divisive fandom um, and then to, to that point, Ooh. can you tell us sort of your experience um, when like Metal Gear Solid 5 came out? Because I know that's sort of when that sort of devi- divisiveness hit a catalyst, I feel like. Right. That's, uh, how, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, uh, I played a big part in how divisive 5 was because I really hyped <laughs> the shit out of it before it came out. Um, <laughs> I, I would play trailers like at the start of all. I remember every that. Stream. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I really hyped it up and I like, but it was, it wasn't like an unnatural, it wasn't a, what's the word, a constructed sort of thing. You know, I really wanted to do it because I was naturally hyped. You know, I was analyzing all the trailers and you know i was super i was i was super hyped and i was super into it and i loved talking about the trailers with chat and hyping everyone up that was the best hype train of like any video game ever i think yeah like, Jesus, I, I was right those there with trailers you, i was were... just like yes come on like analyzing it frame by frame and man back when young was good <laughs> <laughs> those trailers were something else man uh, Kojima should get into edit like editing music videos or something if this video game thing doesn't work out because he's really good at trailers. Um, but yeah, I I I hyped the game up and then the game came out and uh, yeah, people were angry. It kind of felt like MG, MGS two again. I wasn't really I wasn't around for the mm-hmm. MGS two backlash. Um, it's almost exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, and I mean, another thing about MGS2 is is when that came out, you know, the internet was still sort of in this weird wild, wild west phase where there was no centralized, like, socializing. There wasn't any Twitch. There wasn't, you know, a face with the fandom. There's There wasn't people who really controlled that type of stuff outside of, like, fan pages and forums. So to be in such a live environment mm. during, you know, like Nitroid said, an MT- MGS2-esque level of outrage like i can't imagine i guess having that responsibility but sorry go ahead continue the game came out people were people were unhappy but people were so unhappy that um like i I was pretty disappointed by it um but i didn't really connect to the outrage uh, of the community um i felt sort of detached from it you know I, i i sort of understood why people were angry um and i was i was pretty disappointed as well but yeah, I just kind of felt detached from it. And I guess I still kind of do in a way. I don't know. I, st- I feel like I still need to sort out my thoughts on MGS5. I don't really know how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. um, um, what, what I've wanted to do for a long time, ever since the game came out, is do what 
uh, Futura Sound did recently in his What the Hell Happens in MGS5. Um, you know where he goes through um, all the individual missions and tries to make all these yeah. connections. Um, like, you know, all those little conspiracies that Miller goes on about with, you know, Saner and the Finda oil field and all these proxy companies and mm -hmm. the conspiracies within. Because um, I feel like that's probably where a lot of the depth lies in MGS5. But it's also, I'm not sure if you guys feel this way about 5, but dialogue in that game has a habit of going in one ear and like <laughs> right out the other ear. Uh, Miller is is... Is Miller is speculating to himself about all these things about how they're going to track Cipher and um, you know he's he's making all these connections and I'm not sure if we, are we as the players supposed to be invested in what Miller is talking about when he's making all these connections you know because you know we are big boss and uh, he's talking to us more than he's conversing with another player with another character like you know in the previous Metal Gears. So I'm wondering, are, like, are we supposed to be really invested in all these little conspiracies? Because I find it so hard to care about what's going on in that game. You know, why you're doing the things you're doing, which I think is an intentional part of it. Because, you know, as Miller says, it's just wet work. You know, it's just a means to an end. We don't really have any um, involvement in it aside from that. Yeah, you're basically just doing a bunch of side missions that really don't have anything to do with anything. Yeah, you're just... yeah. You know, I well, they they, they sure. do, you know, like they, 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 it does it does slowly yeah, build I, up to something. And within those missions, there are details that connect to the larger narrative. It's just so hard to care. I think it's the, it's definitely it's the delivery of the narrative in that game, like makes it so different because you're listening to these tapes and like the briefings. And you're like, OK, cool, let's go do this mission. And then you're you're in and out. And it was like, OK, that was that one. Got it. But it, yeah. like, it's a lot more linear and streamlined in the other in the other games to where you're like doing an operation. And I, I think that's where a lot of people say, "Where's the story?" And then you know, it's like it's, there's plenty of story. You just have to piece it together by listening to all this shit and you know all these mm. all these tapes and just like kind of put it together. Yeah. But uh, the other games were a lot more like not spoon fed, but you know, you, you got it all like going right through it. Well, you know? Plus, they're more yeah. personal, whereas these ones are more detached. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, like, how do you guys feel about, you know, the history of the vocal cord parasites and listening to Code Talker talk for 40 minutes about parasites in his, in his, in the voice <laughs> that he has, you know, I find it so hard to really care about so many of the concepts in five, just with how they're delivered. Yeah. That cadence um, was killer. His, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I don't want to get into the, the whole, a uh, debate, yeah, on whether or not what MGSV did with its narrative was, you know, how intentional was it? How much was it yeah. trying to elicit a specific feeling, whether that feeling's negative or not? That you know, essentially the did it suck on purpose argument, for lack of a better way to put it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> same one that you can have for MGS4. Yeah. Um, without getting into that, um, I didn't care much at all for the cassette tapes um unlike in peace walker where i listened to every single one and was invested for yeah. almost every single one oh yeah it's yeah. it's kind of, of amazing charm. how different they are yeah it's like exposition mm -hmm. you know just in uh in mgsv yeah, yeah. It's all down to the fact that we're playing as a mute protagonist really you know just listening to these characters 
talk to themselves, especially Miller, like so much of the story is told through pre-mission briefings, post-mission analysis. Miller just constantly speculating about these leads to Cypher and these uh, proxy companies and PFs and these characters that, you know, are barely characters that, you know, might have a couple of lines in a mission when you interrogate them. And it's hard to take it from Kaz, too, because he's so paranoid. Mm. I was really looking forward to that approach after playing Ground Zeroes, you know, because I loved one of my favorite things about Ground Zeroes was just learning that map and learning where all the conversations took place. And it really built XOF and Skullface up as this mystery. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought Skullface was fascinating in Ground Zeroes, how he had this past connection to Big Boss. Like, who is this guy? It almost felt like they were doing something supernatural with him, like some Silent Hill shit where he was like born out of Big Boss's mind or something. That's how far I was going with it anyway in Ground Zeroes because he started, you know, he has these direct quotes of Big Boss from Peace Walker. Um, you know, in one of the tapes, he, um, or in one of the... Um, POW monologues, one of the, the POW, one of the POWs talks about Skullface interrogating him. And one of the things he says is, is something that Big Boss told Chico in Peace Walker. You know, he directly quotes Big Boss from Peace Walker. And um, I was like, wow, how is, you know, this is a Big Boss line of dialogue. But was Skullface there lurking in the shadows uh, during that scene? Like, how is this possible? So yeah, like they really built up Skullface and XOF as this real you know, it was this really interesting mystery. For me, anyway, I don't think the Phantom Pain really capitalized on it. I didn't, I, Skullface became much less menacing around halfway through the Phantom Pain, you know, when he appears with Sahelanthropus and he's, you know, today is the day weapons learn to walk upright. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, he just becomes it's, corny. Yeah, he became, he, he becomes really <laughs> corny. Once that Who line came out. <laughs> and like, well, this guy cares about Metal Gear tech now and, um, you know, he was this like rapist and sadistic schemer in, in Ground Zeroes. Like he, you know, first Zero, then Big Boss. Liberation is at hand. He was this real force to be reckoned with. He was taken down Zero and taken down Big Boss. And, you know, he was smart and conniving and sadistic and horrific and scary to look at. He's not even really scary to look at in The Phantom Pain. Um, you know, with his with his mask and everything. And it it kind of looks like his face isn't even as detailed, but uh, maybe that has something to do with the lighting and like the raindrops on his face and ground zeros. Um, but yeah, I thought he became like way less menacing in um, in the Phantom Pain. And then like his big moment, his final monologue <laughs> in the Jeep. What was up with that? You know? Yeah, worst song placement ever. And, and again... And I think a lot of this might have been by design. I think a lot of it has to have been. Um, you know, Venom looking to the side as if Skullface isn't even there when he's given his monologue. Obviously, he doesn't respond to him, but he even looks away. You know, they have him look away from him. <laughs> like, they really undersell it. And then the music, you know? Kojima knows, that, like, what... You know, we, we saw the trailers. We see... Um, we, we can see how that music fits with a certain type of tone. Yeah, that was the worst placement. <laughs> but the way it interrupts yeah. that right. monologue, the way it interrupts that monologue, I've seen so many people stream it on Twitch and like almost everyone has the same reaction, uh, you know, where it's just like, what? Yeah. What is this? I've, you know, I, I've, I've said this before, but the way it came off to me 
and for what purpose you can you can you know who can say but yeah the impression i got when i first saw that scene was that it was a sort of like inversion of the latter segment from mgs3 where you sort of have this <laughs> right. serene intermission and the music fits well and you can just kind of take a breath and relax because you just finished fighting the end and it's like you know it's a break right yeah um and then in in a you know they they set up the jeep sequence in somewhat of the same way where you're going to put down the controller for a minute and you're just going to listen to something but it's just awkward yeah and yeah. uncomfortable yeah. it's like an it's like an inverse intermission mm. but like for what again for what purpose i don't know it makes me it makes me want to get up <laughs> and leave yeah right <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. want to do this anymore. Makes me want to leave the theater while the movie's going, just to get, get out popcorn. and take a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it does have that feeling. Yeah, if you got to pee, go do it. Right. One thing that I kind of feel during that scene is, you know, at least I think anyway, Skullface believes he's talking to the real <laughs> big boss, right? I, at least I think so. I don't think hmm. Skullface is aware of uh, is aware of Venom. You know, he's like, "Follow me, big boss," and you walk to the jeep. And there's just something kind of funny about it when you, when you think of it like that, you know? He's, he's, rat, he's you know, giving you his whole philosophy. Like, this is his Federal mm -hmm. Hall Solidus moment. This is his Metal Gear Rex liquid moment. The boss at the end of MGS3, you know, it's a recurring thing that the villain has their big final monologue. And this is Skullface's moment, but he's talking to someone who isn't Big Boss, who <laughs> doesn't even know he's there. Like, he's like, it's like he's not even there. Um, it's you know so it's and there's this whole thing through the game of strange. unfulfilled revenge and there's another one yeah it's <laughs> um, so funny though. yeah just a a baffling scene really i think i had the camera like positioned to where like i had it rotated a little bit to where like it basically looked like venom snake looked at the camera like on the oh, office yeah. or something you know yeah. just like man can you believe this can you believe I'm here right now? I want to know yeah. what Skullface's plan was if Zero didn't prick his finger. Yeah, people get really annoyed about that. But for some reason, it doesn't really bother me. You know, like who knows what that little um, pin looked like? You know, he was obviously like this meant a lot to Zero. So he was going to caress it and feel it. Um, I guess you could maybe argue that he shouldn't be as much of an idiot, um, you know, to maybe... <laughs> To, to trust him as much if he is this most secretive person in the world. But yeah, I guess he's, uh, I guess he trusts Skullface. Um, but yeah, for some reason that, that one doesn't bother me as much. Why he doesn't blindfold Paz when she goes to visit him though, that that's maybe a, a bit stranger. You know, Paz is the one who, who tells Skullface exactly where he is, you know, the room number and the address and everything. So maybe that's a bit silly. <laughs> The bell tape was my favorite when he's sitting there talking about ringing the bell and there's a soldier standing outside. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. I think it would have been cool if they did more of that. Again, though, it's so hard to care about those yeah. tapes. If there were more tapes like that, it would have been cool, I think, where you like really had to picture a scene. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, th there was a lot I really loved about the truth tapes, you know, actually getting to, to hear Zero um, post-MGS4. And I think they did a really good job at balancing quirky old Zero with his, with, with his MGS4 development. Yeah. You know, they didn't make him stereotypically evil. He still had his quirkiness, but he was this new character. Because I think, you know, for a lot of people, that development in 4 was too hard to swallow. 
coming so late in the series and opening up this whole can of worms with Big Boss and Zero. Um, I think five really did a lot to make that easier to digest. Um, well, you know, you touched on something so, yeah, there. Was, um, again, one of, I think maybe one of the differences between Peace Walker and MGS five is that the, the tapes in Peace Walker were almost like, they were all almost like little radio dramas. You know, there were actions, there were things happening. It wasn't just flat conversation a lot of the time. Mm. And in MGSV, there, there, still, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, there, there still was a fair bit of... Con I, I still feel like the majority was conversation in Peace Walker. It was just that, you know, there was a lot more humor, you know? And that was another thing yeah, about MGS5, it. you know? Kojima stated early on, you know, this is going to be a darker Metal Gear. There's not going to be as much humor. We had the burgers and, I think and like for that's me, it. A lot of that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for me, a lot of that darkness just translated as sort of, oh, I don't know, what's, what's the word? Just kind of dullness, you know? I, I'm not... Humor is such, was such a big part of Kojima's style. I feel like he maybe went a little bit too far with it in, in The Phantom Pain, you know, to not include it. Um, you know, we had the hamburgers and stuff like that. And, you know, you fault on a sheep and it goes bah when you fault on it. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, it was more goofy gameplay-wise, yeah. Yeah, there was lots of goofy gameplay, but the story and tapes took itself very seriously. Yeah. That's where it went. Um, yep. and, I, and I was so on board for that, you know, playing Ground Zeroes was like, yes, let's do it. Let's have this darker approach. But I don't know. I just found the Phantom Pain, a lot of it just to be very dull. But yeah, I, I think the Peace Walker conversations are easier to digest because there's a way more humor, way more charm. And there's a back and forth between characters. You know, Snake talks a lot. Like the, st the stuff between Snake and Huey in Peace Walker is really great. Um, you know, Cecile's uh, conversations are hilarious. You know, the wine call, uh, tracking Santa on NORAD. Classic. Um, Chico talking about cryptids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Peace Walker definitely had a lot of charm and just good good times. It was like a lot lighter tone for sure. Yeah. Before I really solidify my opinion on 5, I really want to do another playthrough where I, um, you know, go for the 100%. Yeah, um explore the FOB system, because that's something I never did. Um, and I feel like that's ties in pretty heavily with what Kojima wanted to achieve with the game. Yeah, that was uh, a blast when everybody was on that. Yeah, I wish I did. I wish I did more of it, because I feel like maybe I would have enjoyed that. Um, you know, because I thought the missions were pretty samey, you know, and that one thing that really bothered me about five was that it's, you know, it said that one of the big things in the marketing was that you can play it any way, you know, one person will play a mission and they'll have this experience. Another person will play it and they'll have this whole different experience. And it's kind of true in a way, but uh, I don't know. I see a lot of people crouching with that trank pistol, uh, <laughs> popping yeah. headshots and fultoning things. And I feel like that kind of gets stale after a while. There's a lot of, it's extraction mission after extraction mission after extraction mission. Most of them are pretty bite-sized Find a, find a random guard, hold him up, ask him where the target is, find the target, sneak around with your trank, Fulton everyone, and, you know, there's a lot of that. And it's real, and it's great for a while, you know, because the movement is incredible. It's better than it ever was before. The way guards subtly move around, they're not just like stick figures where once you're aimed on their head, you're definitely going to pull off a headshot. You know, 
shooting mechanics and everything felt um, more engaging. I really like the uh, the economy, how they kind of would like figure out how you were playing and then like you could you could mess up their supplies if they started wearing helmets, you know, like you could, yeah, you could just yeah. mess with that, that whole system. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, how like claymores would be set in place if you revisited an area and stuff like that would catch you off guard. But yeah, I don't know. I found the gameplay to be pretty underwhelming, you know, especially compared to how people often talk about it, you know, with it's like anything is possible and you can play it in a load of different ways. I don't know. I feel pretty railroaded in five. You know, I feel like I'm encouraged to play in a pretty specific way. Wash, rinse, repeat. Just another day in a war without end. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of have to go out of your way if you want to do do like certain creative things. Like, you know, you can strap a C4 to a a jeep and have it blow up a chopper but it's not really the most practical thing to do um so yeah i guess i i kind of wish there were you were encouraged to mix up your style a bit more in practical ways you know yeah but i do appreciate that five compared to four you know i'm i'm glad that there's there are more mysteries related to five i feel like even though it might even though it didn't go as planned maybe Kojima still got to end the series more on his own terms, I think, with Five. He got to end it with mysteries and questions and this weird, uh, you know, alter... Oh, what's, what's the word? Sort of subversion of MGS2's ending, um, you know, where we get the opposite of 2's ending. I think that just what the whole ending means is very interesting to me. Maybe, what, what do you guys think about the ending and what Kojima's trying to say and how it's this inverse of 2 with big boss urging you to become like him. And, you know, I feel like on the surface, you could look at it as a thanks from Kojima to the players. You know, we built this legend together, but if you look at it within the story, it feels like this, you know, grand manipulation by big boss. And, you know, if what's that supposed to mean with regards to a message to the player, I wonder, you know, it's hard not to really read it in a cynical light, I think. I think you're spot on. Are we supposed to yeah. re are we supposed to reject are we supposed to reject what the game is to some degree? It's MGS2 but cynical. You know, when you take it in a vacuum, you know, I can see that whole like this is sort of a triumphant ascension into the title of Big Boss, but when you ju juxtapose it with Metal Gear yeah. Solid 2, it does feel like this very unsettling cynical, you know, uh, oppressiveness, I guess. Yeah. It feels like someone handing you dog tags. Right, exactly. Like, Here's your dog tags. You're like, oh, shit, uh, I don't want these. Yeah. You didn't yeah. get it the first time around? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well. Oh, man. Hey, Three Dog, we appreciate you coming on, man. Cheers. It was great to be here. Sorry if I went on a bit too long. No, it was awesome. Hopefully it doesn't bore people. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, not boring at all, man. Yeah, good, seriously. Good we've, been, we've been waiting for this for a while. Great so. to be here. Yeah, man, if you... uh. Want to tell people where they can find you online and where your Twitch channels are? You can, you know, plug your stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, Twitch.tv forward slash three dog, T H R E E D O G. Um, uh, also, Twitch.tv forward slash Outer Heaven, my partner who streams there. We stream together. You know, we do marathons on each other's channels. So, um, yeah, you know, if, if you're if you love Metal Gear, you'll probably see something new watching those marathons like we often do. Um, tune in, I guess. Awesome. If it, if, if it piques your interest, take a look. Um, also on Twitter. Um, what am I on Twitter? What's my handle? Dog TTV. I think D-O-G-G-T-T-V. Um, 
Yeah. That's where you can find me. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a fun, that was a fun talk.